Hi, I'm Annalisa Kingsbury-Lee, and you're listening to Climate Futures, a podcast that interviews Harvard professors, experts, and activists about the future of climate change in their field. This season, we're talking about arguably the core of the climate problem, the energy system. And today, we have an expert, Michael Ratner, probably one of the world's leading experts on natural gas, to come and tell us about natural gas and the climate problem, and also the geopolitics of natural gas. Hi, Michael. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Uh, could you tell me a little bit more about yourself? My name is Michael Ratner. I am a uh, energy specialist at CRS, uh, focusing on energy policy, particularly natural gas. I've been here for 12 years. Uh, prior to that, I worked for the Central Intelligence Agency as their pr- primary uh, international natural gas person. And prior to that, I worked in the private sector. And for those of us who don't know, what is CRS? So CRS, or the Congressional Research Service, has been around for in in a variety of forms, but basically been around for a bit over 100 years. Um, and basically our role is to inform, help inform Congress on issues. And so we're nonpartisan, um, and we're, I would say, fact-based, um, and, but we work for all of Congress. So uh, our role doesn't change. If there's a change in the leadership of Congress or the, you know, the political control of Congress, um, we get requests from as far right and as far left as, as exists within the Congress. Our number one priority is to answer questions that Congress and their staff have. I would say our second priority is to write reports, and that's kind of how we're known to the public. Um, we write reports on what we think Congress needs to know about. And so CRS's mandate is to be objective, neutral, and nonpartisan. So you're not going to come on here and say you support or oppose natural gas or anything like that. Just inform. And let's start with a very simple informative question. What is natural gas? Sure. So natural gas is primarily methane, um, which is a combination of carbon and hydrogen. In the United States, uh, the methane or, or natural gas that we use in our homes to, whether it's for cooking or for heating hot water, you know, um, is uh, what uh, the energy content is about a thousand BTUs. The thousand BTU uh, content of the gas, which measures energy as opposed to cubic feet uh, or cubic meters, which uh, which measures volume, uh, the thousand the BTU is a specification so that um, they, they don't uh, corrode the pipelines, they don't harm your appliances. So everything is geared towards that type of quality of, of natural gas in different parts of the world use different BTU content. And the United States is pretty much self-sufficient in natural gas. Um, and But the gas that comes out of the ground has to be cleaned up and taken out of impurities. And for those who don't know, natural gas is not the gas that you get at the gas station. That's actually gasoline, an oil product. Natural gas is literally a gas, like the air. So what proportion of the U.S. energy mix is natural gas and where is it consumed besides my stove? (laughs) Sure. Uh, So natural gas, unlike coal or oil, which oil is predominantly used in transportation, coal is predominantly used in electricity, natural gas um, historically has been split almost evenly between electricity generation uh, heating purposes. So for residential and commercial heating, heat your home, heat your hot water, heat your food. Um, it's also used in industrial processes um, to, to make uh, fertilizer, uh, to make petrochemicals, plastics. Um, uh, natural gas is one of the feedstocks uh, for, for making those, those things as well. 
And how is natural gas produced and transported? Natural gas, primarily the two biggest states producing natural gas are Texas and Pennsylvania. Um, um, but our, our pipeline network allows gas to be moved all around the country. Um, and and basically starting in 2016, we started exporting liquefied natural gas, um, so by ship, uh, to the rest of the world. The U.S. was one of the pioneers in liquefied natural gas exports. And speaking of things that were pioneered in America, what's the big deal with shale gas, the quote-unquote revolution in natural gas? So natural gas is produced with oil, and his Historically, and even till today, natural gas is it plays second fiddle to oil. Um, oil is is the commodity that that most companies are looking for. Although now that we can transport it around the world, and and as I mentioned, there are multiple uses for for natural gas in the U.S. Uh, basically, starting in the 2008-2009 timeframe, developed what's called shale gas, which is natural gas, methane, but extract the the developed the technology uh, to extract it from shale and other tight rocks, meaning low permeability. So the gas doesn't flow. The gas is stuck in the rock. And through hydraulic fracturing, which a lot of people have, have heard of now, and horizontal drilling, they're able to economically produce it. And that was the big change. Prior to 2008, um, prices in the U.S. had gone up significantly over from, say, from 2000 to 2008. And then as shale gas started to come to market after or at the same time as the the recession, um, U.S. prices stayed low while the rest of the world went back up as the world recovered from the recession. And so the U.S. is now in 2009, I believe, became the world's largest producer of natural gas. And we are also the largest consumer of natural gas, which sort of brings us to the question of something that might be more salient to listeners of the podcast, climate and natural gas. This is an issue that has so many sides to it, it's kind of hard to keep track. But generally speaking, what would you say the pros and cons of natural gas are from an environmental perspective? You know, it, for me as a natural gas analyst, uh, it, it the, the question that st- is still out there is, is natural gas good or is it bad for the environment? So natural gas, you know, in the U.S. Um, has helped decrease our emissions. So when it comes to using renewable electricity in particular, you know, the, the, the criticism is what do you do when the sun doesn't shine or the wind doesn't blow and you need a backup? And natural gas has, you know, has, has usually been that backup because, um, one, there, there are two types of essentially two types of power plants when it comes to natural gas. You have a combined cycle plant, which burns the gas and then takes the waste heat and, and produces more electricity, which is highly efficient. Um, and then you have simple cycle where you're just burning the gas. Um, but in simple cycle in particular, you can ramp that up and down very quickly. A big coal-fired plant or a nuclear plant, you can't do that. They're going to run at base load, meaning all the time, um, in order to do it efficiently. But natural gas had been the complement to renewables. But as shale gas came to, to market and U.S. gas prices started to come down, they started taking on a more adversarial role. Uh, where gas was getting dispatched ahead of renewables, which at that point were still pretty expensive. And that was putting a, a lot more financial pressure uh, on, on the system. And you saw you know, kind of a break between renewables and, and, and natural gas. 
I see. So gas may have helped with transitioning renewables in because it can be turned on and off quickly and so it can compensate for moments when the wind isn't blowing and the sun's not shining. But there are problems, including, as you just said, when we use gas over renewables. What are some other cons? You know, on the other side of it, though, you see more flaring of gas, you see more venting of gas, leaks, um, and things like that, that that people have contested, rebalance the, the scale, if you will, of how how effective natural gas is. And I think it, it all depends. I mean, natural gas, you know, is is a fossil fuel. Natural gas, you know, when burned, produces carbon dioxide, and when not burned, methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. And so those the leakages and stuff have been a big problem. And it, it's interesting as as somebody who's worked in the in the oil and gas sector for most of my career, you know, how I look at it, and you know, particularly certain leakages from pipelines and other things, they can be controlled. And the industry has not done a good job in doing that. And and I think that they could do a lot better to make. And 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 you see it now. Interestingly, you see more of a um, commitment to doing that, to controlling the leaks and and the venting and, and things like that. In part because we're exporting overseas, and I th- it was a couple of years ago, a, a U.S. company had a contract to supply LNG to France to a French company, and the company turned around and canceled the contract because they said our gas was too dirty. You know, there's no global or national regulation. So companies are kind of doing things, you know, so I think the companies have gotten that message that they're going to have to certify that their gas production, you know, from production through the process of liquefying it and shipping it is as clean as possible. And I want to introduce a piece of vocabulary that usually covers what we've been talking about, which is the quote-unquote bridge fuel argument, natural gas transitioning us to renewables. Uh, What do you think about the bridge fuel argument? Will natural gas actually be transitioned out? The question always becomes, well, how long is that bridge? Um, You know, now with the focus on 2030, 2040, 2050, you know, facilities being built now, a power, whether it's a power plant or a pipeline, I mean, major capital investments, you know, usually you're looking at 20 to 30 years uh, of operation and to get your return, you know, what can you, you know, can you, what can you do in the short term without damaging the long term? Uh, becomes the question. And I think natural gas has a role to play. Um, and depending upon how quickly countries, including the United States, move towards meeting their climate change goals will affect how much of a bridge natural gas will be. Another thing you touched on is shale gas, which is surrounded by controversy. People have probably heard the debates around hydraulic fracturing. What is that? And why is it so controversial? You know, in general, extractive techniques are not things that attract a lot of attention from the public. Sure. So this came up a lot in uh, the 2010-2012 timeframe when shale gas was becoming much more prominent. People started hearing about it and the hydraulic, particularly hydraulic fracturing, where basically what you're doing is you're, because the shell is so dense in order to get the, the gas out of it, um, you basically have to crack it or fracture it and you create enough pore space and surface area that allows significant quantities of gas to come up to a producer. Fracking is what occurs for the most part 
say eight to ten thousand feet below the surface. It's they 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 can uh, see where the shale is and how thick it is and how much how much gas is is trapped in it. Um, and then they go down and they basically they blow it up and send down water with propane in it to keep it open. Um, and then the gas flows up and and they're happy. <laughs> and so, but to the public, the whole process of drilling and going hard, you know, drilling horizontally into it and everything that came up, because what's coming up with the gas is a lot of water, a lot of nasty water, um, if you will. And I would say initially the industry wasn't very good about capturing that. And there were some, some issues with water spilling, um, gas coming up so fast that a lot of it was being vented um, because they couldn't capture it as quickly and people were concerned that it was going to affect the water table or, or, or their drink, drinking water. Um, and part of that was again the industry is like no fracking is what happens down at eight to ten thousand feet the rest of it is well completion and this and that and and they were taking a more technical term and they they started talking at people and i'd been in numerous meetings around that time where where the industry people would be like why don't they understand this and it's like well you're not explaining it very well you need to explain that that what you're calling fracking is not what they're calling fracking I see. That's an interesting perspective. Uh, so, were there problems with the water, and how did the industry deal with that? There, you know, there were a number of studies done to see, you know, has it ever contaminated groundwater? And there have been times where gas has has um, penetrated into the groundwater because groundwater is usually at five hundred to a thousand feet. And so, as the gas is coming up, if the companies didn't do their cementing and casing of the well, you can have some escape in, into into the into the water. And so, for the first few years, there was a, a lot of issues about the water and companies. Even though you know you think of engineering and the science behind what they're doing as definitive, it's a lot more art than science in trying to figure out, well, because every, every formation is going to be different. The recipe of what they're sending down there is going to be different. And they took that as trade secrets that allowed certain companies to produce more than other companies, even though they were drilling in the same area. So the companies were very reluctant to disclose that. And lack of transparency usually breeds contempt. And so the, I think the combination of not being very clear about things and then not wanting to disclose things really put the public on edge. Um, eventually, it transitioned. I don't hear as much uh, as, as much about the water issue when it comes to fracking as I do about the emissions. And that, I think, is still the, the, the more prominent issue currently when it comes to production of gas, and including shale gas, that you have... You have more more methane being emitted, uh, vented, if if you will, um, and and leaks and 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 unintended um, unintended leaks um, that are hurting the climate and and affecting our goals of of improving uh, or halting climate change. 
To be clear, the debates that you're talking about took place in the 2010s, but when was fracking invented? And what about shale gas extraction? Are those really the same thing? Fracking's been around for decades, mm. since the 1940s and 50s. Um, and basically, in a traditional well, where you're not drilling into very dense rock, um, fracking was used as what what's called an enhanced oil recovery, so a way to get more oil out, and in some cases gas. But for you know, the history of the oil and gas industry is much more the history of the oil industry. I would say up until 2010, gas not as well you know not not as well known or not as well used. So fracking had been around for a long time, and basically as prices started to go up in the 2000s, and actually the U.S. the U.S. was viewed as a growing importer of, of LNG, um, and like all the, the big projects in Qatar were in part to target the U.S. market. Well, as prices were going up, though, companies... It got the incentive to produce more, and and the company credited with kind of igniting this the shale gas revolution, as, as it's called, was a company called Mitchell Energy, and they had commit contract contractual commitments to supply gas, and they didn't have it, and so George Mitchell, the 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 head of Mitchell Energy, um, tasked his his engineers and and you know production engineers to figure out. And they sat on top of the Barnett Shale in Texas. So they were right there and they were able to, to, to do experiments and, and try to figure out how to economically um, produce gas trapped in shale. And eventually they, they were successful. But it took those high prices and their, and their contractual obligations to, to get them to that point. Now, the U.S. government had funded some shale research in the 70s and 80s through the Department of Energy and was was helpful. Um, but eventually the companies took over and, and, and were able to figure out so how to go laterally and stay within the shale formation, um, but also how to fracture. As a reminder, you're listening to Climate Futures with natural gas analyst at the Congressional Research Service, Michael Ratner. So let's move on to talking about the geopolitics of natural gas, which the start of the war in Ukraine brought a lot of attention in natural gas supply to Europe. Could you tell us a little bit about the 101 of natural gas geopolitics? Natural gas, unlike oil, is not is much more still much more of a regional commodity. So most of the natural gas produced in the world is either consumed in the country that produced it, or in the region where it was produced. But it is growing much more as an international commodity, becoming much more like oil, and that has raised some issues, particularly in Europe, because they get a lot of pipeline gas from Russia, from Norway, from Algeria, but they also have a lot of LNG import capacity, whereas, say, Asia, the traditional LNG importers were Japan and South Korea and Taiwan, and they they all, you know, they had their set amounts and were actually willing to pay a little bit more to guarantee that they got the supply. So it was always, will Europe have enough gas? And basically, you know, the current conflict between Russia and Ukraine highlighting the role of natural gas, you know, will always point to the Cold War before the wall came down where the Soviet Union never cut the gas. The Soviet Union was viewed as a reliable supplier of natural gas to, to Europe. And so natural gas in Europe always has, or 
for a long time has had this geopolitical um, dimension to it that you don't see as much in Asia. Now you're starting to see it because with the war, actually going back to 2014 when Russia first invaded Crimea, one of the first things that happened was Russia finally agreed on a deal with China to supply more gas to China and the pipeline, the power of Siberia was built. So Russia seems to be shifting a bit more towards China uh, in, in a mark, uh, for, as a market um, and also other parts of Asia, India as well. Wow, all of that is fascinating. And I'm really particularly interested by the comparison with oil. Do you think you could elaborate a little bit more about that, especially for those of us who don't really know much about the oil market? You know, the oil market is the most developed market in the world. Even though you have OPEC as a as a cartel trying to control some of the supply uh, to influence prices, or you know, for the most part, and I mean, Russia is a major oil exporter, and so um, not to make light of what would happen if they cut oil off to the global market, but they they're selling oil at a, at a significant discount to keep oil flowing and keep money coming in. But oil, for the most part, as as a the most traded commodity in the world, it's it, it's kind of like well, if they don't sell, if Russia doesn't sell to Europe, they'll sell to China, and then wh- whoever was selling to China will now sell to Europe, or you know, basically is, and it'll take a it'll it'll take some time, usually you know weeks before you know for that for that change in the market to happen. That it doesn't work that way with gas because again, most of the oil is arriving on ships, where where almost two-thirds of the gas that's exported is by pipeline, so you can't pick the pipeline up and move it to another country. And so that's that's part of the, what gives Russia more leverage in Europe with certain countries that are getting all their gas from Russia. And so now the big push uh, is to is to put more LNG import capacity into Europe to counter the Russian gas. And that's going to take time. Um, and, you know, and, and so people are looking at it. It's like right now the big issue is can Europe get through the next winter? And so the market is trying to adjust, but you don't have, again, you don't have that this the size and depth of ships and producers and and the other thing to keep in mind is natural gas is very expensive to ship um, it's expensive to move by pipeline because you have to compress it but by ship you know to liquefy natural gas you have to decrease the temperature to negative 260 degrees and you have to keep it at that temperature so those ships are basically giant thermoses but what that does is when you when you uh, cool it to that temperature the gas becomes a liquid and contracts in volume size by 600 times and that's what allows you to do it economically to send it over a thousand miles. Usually it's over a thousand, fifteen hundred miles you're going to liquefy. Under that, you're going to build a pipeline. Um, but that's expensive to do. And, you, and you're talking, you know, tens of billions of dollars, you know, usually 10 to 20 billion dollars to build a liquefaction facility. In order to finance it, historically, you needed. Um, you need AAA-rated utilities, usually the Japanese or Korean utilities, to buy it um, to get the financing from the banks. Now they're able to finance uh, with less credit-worthy companies, um, but it's still a much more complex and a much more difficult process than 
putting oil on a ship or putting coal on a ship. Amazing. So the transportation, the financing, the actual material qualities of oil versus natural gas all make a difference, both in consumption of natural gas and in the geopolitics. So my last major question is about the future of natural gas. What role do you see it playing 25, 30, 50 years from now? I think natural gas will still be part of the energy mix. I mean, currently, I think the world energy mix, it's about 25%. In, in electricity generation, I, th- I think the goal is is to bring in more renewables and push coal and, and gas out um, over over time. But that said, gas is you know gas and 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 parts of the gas stream are still used for heating. And so you, yes, you can replace the heating with electricity, but it may not be as efficient. Um, plastics, petrochemicals, fertilizers, there's still a lot of use of gas that can't be replaced. And and then it becomes a matter of how quickly governments change their policies to tighten the emissions requirements uh, in in all the in all the sectors and then to see how how in the case of the US how the market reacts in in trying to achieve those goals. So we have to hope for the best that something can be achieved uh, within our lifetimes. And on that semi-optimistic note, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I think this has truly been incredibly informative. Thank you for having me. You've just listened to Climate Futures Season 3, Episode 2. I'm your host, Annalisa Kingsbury-Lee. Today's guest was Congressional Research Service Natural Gas Analyst Michael Ratner. Stay tuned for more on the energy system, decarbonization, and all things climate futures. (laughs) 